And now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Ian Buruma. Uh, Ian Buruma was educated in Holland and Japan, where he studied Chinese literature and Japanese cinema. He has been a documentary filmmaker and photographer. He went on to pursue writing and reporting across Asia, covering as cultural editor of the Far Eastern Economic Review and foreign editor of The Spectator London. He writes regularly for the New York Review of Books, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. He is the author of the novel The China Lover and Taming the Gods, Religion and Democracy in Three Continents. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Ian Buruma. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, and um, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming. I'm always surprised that people on a nice sunny evening come to hear somebody hold forth. Uh, not something I myself often do, but there we are. Uh, I'm glad that you do. Um, religion is the subject. Um, religion is, is something that we thought, in, at least in Western Europe, was a problem that we'd licked um, by now. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Europeans um, often like to be patronizing about America and see America as this sort of primitive continent where they still have uh, all kinds of religious people running around, but in Europe this was thought to be something of the past. In fact, of course, it's not. And uh, who would have thought that in nice liberal Holland where I grew up, there would now be a populist right-wing leader of a one-man party, essentially, um, who in uh, June might actually be the biggest party in the Netherlands and whose only agenda is to warn the Dutch in the first place but the West in general of uh, Islamization. He's one of the people who believes that Europe is, go is on the road to Arabia, that we're being swamped by Muslims and that Islam is a threat to Western civilization. It would be the first, first time actually since the war, if he, he becomes the biggest party, that uh, a figure like that has been so successful. Normally, in good years for them, um, right-wing populists of that kind might garner between 10 and 15% of the vote. Uh, he will, is, is set to get a lot more, and the only agenda is, is the, the perceived threat uh, of Islam. Now, I myself... Um, don't really have an axe to grind with religion since I, I never had one. I didn't grow up with one. I come from a mixed background. My father was the son of a Mennonite minister, and the Mennonites in the Netherlands are a very different breed from those in the United States. It's the most ecumenical, most progressive um, uh, pro form of Protestantism there is in Holland, and uh, this caused um, some embarrassment to my grandfather when his American brethren would occasionally turn up in his um, provincial Dutch town wearing black suits and long beards, uh, and they had very little in common. But my father, being a typical son of a, a, a man of the cloth, um, became a lifelong atheist. <laughs> and my mother uh, comes from the kind of uh, assimilated Jewish, Anglo-German Jewish family that was described by Adam Gopnik in The New Yorker once, talking about his own family, uh, in, in which he said um, the, the Jewishness of his family was expressed in the zeal with which they celebrated Christmas. Um, <laughs> this was very much true of my grandparents. We had to have a, a bigger Christmas tree than the Goyim and more presents and so on and so forth. But no religion. So, uh, but I did grow up in a country where uh, as late as the, as, the, as the 1960s, people forget this often, 
but which was still a profoundly religious uh, place. And if you switched on the radio on Sundays, you'd hear very little uh, but various kinds of preaching. And so, and that really collapsed, organized religion that is, collapsed in, in the, the course of the 1960s, but, uh, but only then, so it wasn't very long ago. The book is about uh, uh, religion and democracy in, on three continents, including China and Japan, but I'll concentrate a little bit on the problems of um, Islam in Europe, uh, since we don't have all that much time. And um, I'll pose the question, how dangerous um, Islam in particular, but religion really is to um, liberal democracy, to Western society. Theocratic religions, uh, theocratic uh, uh, revolutions, theocratic states clearly are uh, a danger to democracy. In fact, they're incompatible with democracy. Um, you cannot have the, the source of uh, political power being the same source as religious power and absolute truth. Um, but actually, such places, theocracies are relatively rare. People often uh, think of the Middle East as a place of, where countries are run by uh, Islamists. Uh, this is far from the truth. Iran is rather an exception, and then the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan. Most um, Arab countries are um, run by secular dictatorships who crush religious Islamist movements with, with great brutality. Um, so theocracies, if one doesn't include the secular kind of theocracies, by which I mean various kinds of fascism and communism, which are also really um, re regimes based on, on a belief and a claim to absolute truth, but are, are, are rather rare uh, in the world today. Religious-inspired violence, acts of religious-inspired violence, are not so rare, alas, and are indeed a danger. And we've seen what happens when uh, people uh, take up re uh, revolutionary religious causes and um, blow, try and blow up airplanes, um, underground systems, um, airports, and so on. And there have been enough examples of this uh, to, uh, to worry us. Uh, not that this means that um, a re an Islamic revolution is imminent or that any European state or any other state is in, in danger of falling to Islamists, certainly not in the Western world, but a, f a small number of people by uh, unleashing uh, a spectacular act of violence can severely damage uh, a democratic state. We've seen that post 9-11, uh, uh, enough examples of that in the United States, I mean, partly because of overreaction to these uh, acts of violence. Um, we've seen the same thing um, outside the West. Uh, in Japan, a nutty group of pseudo uh, Buddhist stroke Hinduist um, followers of a guru, a half-blind guru um, uh, called Asahara Shoko um, tried to, or didn't try, um, murdered a large number of people by putting sarin poison in the Tokyo subway system, hoping that this would unleash Armageddon, which would lead to uh, a new world led by uh, the followers of this belief. So, these acts are not, not rare. The violence is real. But it's not, uh, I would argue, a clash of civilizations, as is often um, um, said. Um, because the violent revolutionaries are not people who are actually born and bred in an alien civilization, as it were. They're people, on the whole, who are born and grew up in Europe itself. They're not the original immigrants. They're the children of immigrants. The people who uh, feel alienated from 
often the village culture of their parents, um, but don't feel accepted in the country of their birth. And so they're in betwixt and between, and as people, young people, especially who feel in betwixt and, in betwixt and between things, they're vulnerable to great revolutionary causes. Uh, young people often are, especially young men. Uh, so this is um, nothing very unusual and has very little to do with Islam uh, per se. Um, if you think, for example, of the killer of Theo van Gogh, Theo van Gogh, about whom I wrote a book, um, called Mohamed Bouyeri. His, his father was a so-called guest worker from Morocco. Mohamed Bouyeri grew up in Holland, had no interest in religion particularly, uh, liked to watch football, chased girls, drank beer, and so on, um, but then felt rejected for one reason or another. And these reasons can be uh, sometimes imaginary, sometimes real, and, and it could be anything to, that makes a young person feel that uh, the world uh, is against him, and as a consequence, he wants to bl blow up the world in, in the name of some great cause. And uh, his Islam really was downloaded from the internet uh, in English, often from uh, Saudi um, sites, websites, uh, Wahhabism. And Wahhabism is a form of purist Islam that appeals to such people precisely because it doesn't have um, a great traditional um, a, a great uh, a tradition. It's, it's a purist uh, form of born-again Islam, really, which appeals to people who, who don't have uh, traditional roots for that very reason. And so it's not a, a hunting, not a clash of civilization as pro pro proposed by people like Samuel Huntington. It's something else. I would say that if you really want to understand um, the mentality of the kind of young revolutionaries such as Muhammad Bouyeri or Muhammad Siddiqui, uh, known as Sid to his friends in England who uh, led a group um, that put bombs in the London underground. Uh, very similar figure to Muhammad Bouyeri, uh, a do-gooder, he did youth work and so on, felt rejected, joined uh, an extreme uh, Islamist group, very different from his parents or the religion of his parents, uh, which was uh, a sort of village um, Islam from Pakistan. He didn't speak the language of his parents, Urdu. He also downloaded things um, uh, and so on. And so you get a very half-baked form of religion, which then um, uh, becomes part of, of a violent political revolutionary project. And I think if you want to understand such people, it's no good reading the Quran, as some people, uh, including the former Prime Minister uh, Tony Blair, like to think. Um, it's much more useful to read uh, Joseph Conrad, for example, um, who described exactly such figures, uh, anarchists in the early 20th century, uh, the anonymous young man in the raincoat roaming around London with a, with a bomb in his pocket, wanting to blow up the world that had, um, in his mind at least, uh, rejected him. The problem, I think, with the debate about uh, Islam and a lot of the alarmism about Islam um, exemplified by this Dutch politician, Geert Wilders, for example, is that people confuse or confound um, different problems, all of which are problems and all of which exist but are not part of the same monolithic whole. Um, one problem is uh, a common one amongst all uh, immigrant societies uh, in, the United States, in, in the United States or a city like Los Angeles, you know that well enough. Uh, the first generation born in a place um, not only are they often culturally dislocated, but um, they frequently haven't had the benefit of a decent education. There is high unemployment. 
uh, and that means street crime, uh, petty crime of all kinds. Uh, the statistics are relatively high in such communities, and that um, is frightening to the mainstream of society. That's one problem. The second problem is that um, many uh, immigrants from small villages in Anatolia or the Rif Mountains in Morocco have views on, let's say, the relations between men and women or uh, homosexuals um, that are not uh, in sync with the liberal consensus of modern Western society. Um, that can cause frictions, uh, and it's, it can be a problem, a social problem. It's not going to blow up the world, but it's, it's, it's there. And then the third problem is revolutionary violence in the name of Islamism, uh, Al-Qaeda-type activity. Now, the people who talk about Islamization or Eurabia tend to see all these three problems as one and the same. It's this, this monolithic thing called uh, Islam which is threatening the West. And in fact, of course, there is no such thing. There are many different Muslims, there are many different strands of, of, of Islam, there, uh, there, are, um, there is a relatively small number of revolutionary Muslims, but these things are not the same and should not be seen as the same. The other thing I think uh, that makes the debate particularly fraught is that people quite deliberately um, use the vocabulary of World War II. Uh, in the minds of those who warn against Eurabia, it's forever 1938. Uh, those who don't stand up to the new, th the new form of Islamo-fascism that's about to sweep the West are uh, really appeasers uh, like Neville Chamberlain, or worse, collaborators with the new form of Nazism. That, as well as uh, the kind of language that one, we, can asso we associate with um, various forms of racism uh, that goes uh, back a long way in history, the, 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 the paranoid fear that they are outbreeding us, if that, that they have so many more children than we do, soon um, we'll be swamped by them. Again, uh, I think a, a highly alarmist view of the world, which if you think about it, uh, is uh, simply not going to happen. In the first place, because as people, immigrants or children of immigrants, grandchildren of immigrants, move into the middle class, if they move up economically, they don't have more children than anybody else. The other uh, basis for this fear is the notion that the grandchildren or the children of the grandchildren of the original immigrants would still culturally in, in, and in religious terms and politically maybe be exactly the same as the original immigrants, which of course is very rarely the case. I mean, some may, bore, may be more extreme, but many of them uh, won't be. Many of them will have lost their faith uh, by then. So I think these are, are, are really fallacies. When I researched the book on the murder of uh, Theo van Gogh, van Gogh uh, murder in Amsterdam, one of the most hopeful things I saw um, was when I interviewed a Dutch citizen of Iranian descent, um, somebody who's um, constantly warning his fellow citizens of the danger of Islamization, uh, a law professor at Leiden University. We were having lunch and he was telling me about how dangerous Islam was to Western society. And I looked around me, us and I saw um, uh, a, a very large number, perhaps the majority of the people there, of students, um, young women, often in veils, uh, who were law students. And I thought that this was actually a very hopeful sign because it showed that people, that here was a generation of people who seriously tried to, to combine, to reconcile in a way, um, their uh, choice to be believers 
devout believers, but also to study Dutch law, who, who clearly wanted to be plugged in as citizens of a Western democracy and, and, and did not think the two were incompatible, and nor should they. So I, I, I saw this as, as a hopeful sign. Um, which leaves really the revolutionary element, the revolutionary violence, which is a serious problem and needs to be addressed uh, by the police, by intelligence, and so on. But it can only be defeated um, if we have uh, the majority of non-violent Muslims, uh, and that includes sometimes fundamentalists. I mean, people have a fundamentalist belief. and In some ways, all Muslims have a fundamentalist belief in the sense that they take the Quran literally. Um, they, the majority of those people who do not wish to unleash violence on society need to be on the side of the liberal democracies. And you cannot do that if you take all these various problems and see the problem, uh, the threat, as it were, to us as Islam per se. Then you alienate the very people you need, um, who, the only people who can actually isolate the violent revolutionary element, which needs to be, to be isolated. But I think maybe there's a deeper problem and uh, which is not just uh, connected to Islam. There's a deeper problem when you think of um, the tensions between um, religion and uh, liberal democracy. And that is something that was promote, proposed in a, in a new book by my friend and, and uh, co-writer uh, on one of our books um, called Abishai Margalit, a philosopher from Israel. And he made the distinction between religious politics and uh, economic politics. And by religious politics, he didn't mean the politics of a particular faith. He meant the politics that are based on some promise of redemption, some idea of an ideal state in the future for which we have to sacrifice and a claim to absolute truth. Um, and he contrasted this to economic politics, which is po the politics of interests, that politics are, uh, represent certain interests and you find compromises with people who have other interests and there is wheeling and dealing and so on. Um, and it's the kind of politics without which a, a liberal democracy, of course, couldn't function. Now, no society um, consists of 100% economic policies, not even the United States, and no society is, it, it consists of 100% religious politics. Um, but uh, the mixture has to be on the side of, the, of, of economic polit politics for uh, uh, a liberal democracy to survive. Um, if not, if um, the uh, theological view of politics prevail, and that's not just, a, I repeat, a matter of, of uh, religious believers, it, it can even be the people, certain type of secularists who say that they stand up for Western civilization against the threat of Islam, who can be as dogmatic and as zealous um, as the religious people that they um, oppose. Once you see, see the world in those terms, or politics in those terms, you end up not with debate or political debate, you end up with what the Germans uh, in the days of Bismarck, when Bismarck unleashed uh, a war against the Catholic Church, um, you get a Kulturkampf, um, which is highly dangerous because from Kulturkampf nothing good uh, will come. In fact, um, violence is, is likely. And in a Kulturkampf, there is really no room for people who uh, debate, who have different uh, opinions on politics and who debate, but who are all interested in, in the end in finding the truth. There is only room for friends and enemies, for collaborators and resistors, West and Islam and so on. 
And I think what complicates this, uh, this Kulturkampf is that it's not a question just of right against left or right against progressive. Many former leftists have joined the conservatives in their rather zealous um, uh, talk about uh, the threat of Islam. And I think this really goes back to the Salman Rushdie case, um, when many people, including Salman Rushdie himself, who believed in multiculturalism, were forever warning us against um, Western imperialism and colonialism, neo-colonialism and so on, always took the side of the third world. Suddenly one of us, as it were, a, a metropolitan, cosmopolitan, um, left-wing writer, suddenly he became the target of a movement that was uh, rooted in, in the third world. And I think that this changed the minds of a lot of people who were on the left and who are now almost as zealous uh, in their opposition to Islam as uh, the populist uh, Geert Wilders is. Um, there are many reasons for it. I mean, Rushdie is not the only reason. I think there's also a, a, a dogmatic anti-clericalism often about so-called so progressives who often came from religious families, converted and have all the to atheism and to have all the zeal of the converts. But um, it, it, it split, the, the, the Rushdie case in any case, I think split the left as much as it, it, it split the, the, the right. Now the question is whether compromise is possible with uh, religious politics or with people who, whose political views are um, largely inspired by their religious faith. Um, and that includes, of course, Muslims. And I think if we uh, think of the Muslims, one would have to answer that it is indeed possible to, to find a compromise. There is, there is room for people um, uh, for, for democratic politics inspired by uh, the Muslim faith, just as there's room for Christian Democrats in many uh, European countries, uh, or indeed Christians in, in the United States, whether one likes them or not. Um, Islamic parties uh, function uh, in democracies, such as Indonesia um, and Turkey. They're flawed democracies, but most democracies are. Um, but there's no reason to believe that uh, Islam in some ways is fundamentally incompatible uh, with democracy. Uh, it, it's not. And I think politics, if we think just of the history of the United States, the modern history of the United States, pol politics can be informed by uh, religious beliefs and be entirely um, uh, rational. I mean, think of Martin Luther King's uh, um, views on, on civil rights. They were clearly inspired uh, by his Christianity, um, but they were views with, 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 which, which, which were rational and which were therefore open to debate um, and could be in the mainstream uh, of political life of, of the United States. What can't be, the thing you can't compromise with is violence, um, either the threat of violence or, of course, the use of it. Um, the, the use of violence to impose particular views, whether they're religious or, or, or anything else, uh, cannot be condoned. Uh, and religion is an odd thing because it can incite violence, and, but it can also um, uh, serve to contain it. Um, uh, it's a little bit like uh, soccer in, in Europe or other forms of tribalism. Um, to to uh, call religion irrational it would be true, but it's not really helpful. Um, because, uh, as I said, the same things that incite violence can tame them. Um, and I think they're tamed by ritualizing, and this is very much true, I think, of, of sports, uh, team sports, and especially soccer, because it is uh, tribal, because it's also, it wears national colors and so on. 
Um, that sports, in many ways, uh, and religion, um, ritualizes violent impulses, um, or indeed um, notions of death uh, and decay and, and, uh, and, and so on. If you look at religious art, and not just Christian religious art, but even uh, certain kinds of Buddhist art, you see that there are ways that people, almost ritual, ritual ways for people to deal with death and violence um, and things that, 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 that frighten us. And bullfighting would be another example, and I'm not prom about to promote bullfighting everywhere, but I think where um, it is already a tradition, I see no real reason to uh, abolish it, because I think like churches, like football matches, um, the bullring um, is a way to sort of contain violence by, by, by uh, ritualizing it, by turning it to a kind of art, as it were. So to allow Muslims or others to express their faith uh, peacefully in public is, is not appeasement uh, or a betrayal of Western civilization. Now, um, Salman Rushdie made a distinction once, which I think is useful um, to bear in mind. He said, um, and, and this is in, in terms of free speech, and free speech, of course, uh, is, is a fundamental pillar of democracy, and it's one of the things that people fear uh, is, uh, that is in danger um, um, of being eroded by religious intolerance. And uh, Salman Rushdie um, proposed that it was all right to attack religion or beliefs or opinions of any kind, but it's not all right to attack the believers. In other words, you can attack Islam, you can ridicule it, but you can't attack or ridicule um, Muslims just because they hold that faith. Now, I think that's a, a perfectly reasonable distinction. The problem in practical terms is that to true believers, of course, the, the distinction doesn't quite hold. Uh, to a, re a true believer, and not just a Muslim, um, uh, many Christians are, are like this too, uh, to attack their faith, you're attacking them as individuals. And I think this is the difference between um, religion, religious symbols, and political opinions. A political opinion is, is simply that, it's an opinion. A faith is more constitutive, I think, of um, people's identity. It's, it's, uh, it's as national flags are to some people, which is why there, is, there are always problems about burning flags. Um, people feel that it's an attack on them as individuals, more, and it's, it, it's more, I think, than, than simply an, an opinion, which is not to say that I, I believe that there should be laws to ban uh, criticism of, of religious faith or, or indeed burning flags. But one has to, I think, um, in order to have a civilized society, be somewhat, um, let us say, discreet about uh, attacking religious symbols. What one doesn't have to be discreet about, or at least less discreet, is attacking certain positions held by religious authorities or positions arrived at uh, on the basis of political faith, uh, of, of religious faith, um, which uh, are legitimate um, uh, targets of, of criticism. And by that I mean, for example, uh, if the Pope um, promotes uh, or, or, or dissuades or, or bans uh, birth control, especially in countries where people can ill afford too many children, this is a position one can legitimately attack, which is not quite the same thing as ridiculing, say, the Virgin Mary. If one, one is talking about, uh, uh, well, for, take the, the, the most famous example, in the case of Islam, the, the, the Danish cartoons. 
uh, people say it should be, it's perfectly legitimate to attack the prophet or to ridicule the prophet in cartoons. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I wouldn't be against, I, I'm against uh, banning it by law. I think it's cowardly of uh, a publisher not to publish them in a book that's actually specifically about this subject. Nonetheless, there is a difference between attacking religious symbols and, as I said, uh, opinions that are based on that, but which can be rationally um, uh, discussed. As a, a thought experiment, I would um, propose the following. If uh, an Israeli government were to say that uh, the West Bank has to be occupied in perpetuity um, because it's uh, the sacred land and, and, um, and on bi biblical grounds the Jews have a perpetual right to own that land, that I think any cartoon that ridicules that position is perfectly legitimate. But that would not be the same thing as publishing a cartoon in a um, serious newspaper ridiculing the Torah or rabbis. Um, th those are two different angles of attack, which I think we have to be careful to distinguish. Perhaps the most complicated, um, and this is uh, um, an anecdote, well, I don't know if to, whether to call it an anecdote, it was a famous incident um, that brings this uh, um, tension um, to the fore, perhaps most dramatically, was the case of um, uh, an, a Muslim activist uh, born in Switzerland of Egyptian uh, parents called Tariq Ramadan, who very recently was given a visa to come to the United States again after being banned for uh, several years. Um, and he was put on the spot in a television uh, program in France by the then Home uh, Affairs Minister, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, before Sarkozy became uh, president. And Sarkozy put it to Ramadan, and Ramadan uh, describes himself as a Salafist, that is to say, an orthodox Muslim who wants to go back to the original texts, while at the same time being a kind of leftist in his politics, but somebody who tries to reconcile um, uh, being uh, a citizen of a democratic, modern, um, uh, Western liberal democracy and being an orthodox uh, Muslim. Now, Sarkozy put it to him and said, are you or are you not against uh, the stoning of, uh, to death of adulterous women? And Ramadan answered that he himself personally was against it. He was against any form of the death penalty. And therefore, but this was based on, on, on sacred texts. And if you want to be taken seriously in religious circles, you, this has to be argued out. You can't simply say it has to be banned. So what he proposed is that it, there should be a moratorium on such practices, but it should be left to further discussion uh, among the religious on what to do with the religious uh, laws. Now, Sarkozy uh, blew up and thought this was absolutely outrageous, and it showed that this was a dangerous figure, and there are many people, several pe many people who agree with Sarkozy on this, and indeed, uh, it is somewhat wishy-washy. Um, but uh, there is a view on this, which again needs to be pondered, whether it's quite right or, or not, but it's, it's, it's a legitimate view by the French scholar of Islam in Europe, I think one of the best scholars, Olivier Roy, who said that by saying that, Ramadan was in fact uh, making an attempt to separate church from state. He was saying that the laws, the secular laws, which are against, don't allow the stoning of adulterous women, uh, should be observed, hence a moratorium, but the religious laws uh, should be discussed by the religious. In other words, he, he, he did 
try in his way to separate them. Now, whether this is entirely convincing or not, I don't know, but it's something to, to, to think about. And I think, but I do think, and this is something that he might have spelt out a bit more clearly, certainly in my view, that where religious law uh, is in conflict with secular law, secular law should prevail. In other words, I don't agree with the German court which found, founded a mitigating circumstance uh, that uh, somebody was a Muslim um, after he had killed, I, I believe, his sister because she um, refused to marry uh, somebody that the family had selected and instead had chosen her own boyfriend, uh, a so-called honor killing, and the court um, uh, gave him a, a, a lesser sentence because they thought that this should be taken into consideration. I think this is uh, a mistake. And I would really end by uh, quoting um, my hero in these matters, um, not a religious man, uh, the uh, Dutch-Jewish uh, philosopher Baruch or Benedict Spinoza, um, who believed that um, everybody should be free to believe or not to believe, and, and religious faith is, is a good thing if it makes people behave lovingly and, and peacefully, but it should be under control, uh, kept under control of the secular state. Uh, and he, of course, was speaking at a time when uh, the church uh, was uh, not just uh, a religious force, but had real political uh, authority. Um, and, but I think what, really what he was saying, and this is where I'll, I'll, I'll conclude before uh, taking your questions, I think what he was saying is that you cannot ban God. All you can hope for is to tame the gods. Thank you. Andrew Lichtman. I, I'm very impressed with your presentation. I'm sure a large part of the audience agrees with me that you're struggling to deal with something that's very important to all of us, and you've done a, a good job. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm not coming through. Um, the, I have three challenges to you. And I think what I would say is maybe that it isn't the gods that need to be tamed, but the civilization that the gods are fighting. Because as Ang Lee expressed in a movie about the Civil War, there's a kind of he cultural hegemony of the modern way of doing things that's a real threat to most primitive societies. And so much of what looks like radical or terrorist activity is a vessel for a lot of the outrage that the people who want to fight that hegemony really have no, they don't have a real weapon to fight. That some famous uh, terrorists have said, give us, you know, give us nuclear bombs and, and jet fighters, we'll use those, but in the meantime, we're gonna use these more primitive means. And in that context, what do we do about these problems? how Israel deals with the Palestinian issue and with their hegemony and their military might, how Iran proposes to counter that by getting a nuclear weapon, and, and finally, how almost everywhere you look um, where there's a collision between secular and religious, the, um, when you say that secular trumps, you're really ultimately saying that in two or three generations we're going to educate your children so that they will no longer be religious, or at least not in the, in the way that you say you want them to be. Well, uh, first of all, I think we should be very careful about the use of the word primitive because uh, um, that's a rather loaded term. Um, I don't think um, 
Iran wants the bomb to help the Palestinians. I mean, that's, it's, it's much more a question of who's going to be able to be the boss in the Middle East and want to be a great power and so on and so forth. Nor do I think that religious-inspired terrorism, uh, groups like Al-Qaeda and so on, um, really has very much to do with the cultural hegemony of the modern West or secularism or anything of that kind. I think really what's happened is that um, there's very little choice at the moment in the Middle East between the mosque on the one hand and secular police states on the other. I mean, the, the problem with, with most Arab societies is they're run by, they're by, by failed secular dictatorships. And what you have then is that the rebellion against a secular dictatorship is a little bit like the rebellion in, say, Poland against the communist regime. The, 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 the church for, is, is, a, is a place where you can mobilize people around an alternative um, form of morality that um, tries to uh, sweep away what they see as the sort of the corruption of, uh, of, 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 of dictatorship. And I think that's really the, 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 the reason for it. It's not a cultural struggle against uh, Western culture. Now, where Western culture does come in is that, quite rightly, from the point of view of the rebels, the protesters, the dissenters, the, the secular dictatorships are indeed deeply corrupt and hypocritical. And in countries with majority Muslim populations, they, they pay lip service to it, but um, adopt the worst of sort of Western materialism, Western materialism. And so by rebelling against their own corrupt elites, they're also by extension uh, fighting the source of the, of the corruption in their societies. But I don't think, again, it's not a kulturkampf. It's not primitive people hanging on to their own traditions or wanting to hang on to their own traditions in a, a, a bewildering world led by Hollywood and, uh, and, and, and Western civilization. I don't think that, I, that's not quite the way I see it. Uh, my name is Ken O'Brien. Uh, I don't know if this is too much of an inside baseball question, but you kind of casually insulted the Yale University Press in your um, I did, presentation. I insulted who? You insulted the Yale University yes. Press, uh, calling them cowards uh, for not publishing the cartoons in their book. And uh, I could go on my, um, you know, my uh, Palm Pilot and find on Google those cartoons in a minute. And yes. so I was wondering why you would make a big deal about publishing. Well, a book because without... I think I make a de big deal out of it because um, I think the freedom of expression and the freedom to publish. Um, is fundamental to, uh, to liberal democracy. And if you're going to publish a book um, about a particular... Um, uh, the subject of the book, after all, is the Danish cartoons, and out of fear of violence, you re then refuse to actually show those cartoons. I, I, I do think that's, a that, that's giving in to intimidation in a way that we shouldn't, just as... Um, and, and again, the, the Muslims are, are not the only culprits here. The, there was a, a, another famous case a few years ago in Britain of uh, a play written by a young woman who, who, of, whose background, cultural background, was, was uh, Sikh. And she wrote a play about a murder, I think a rape and a murder, in a Sikh temple. And uh, the, the so-called representatives... Uh, of the Sikh community, who are very rarely 
democratically elected these, these representatives, um, protested and, and threatened violence. And uh, the police then said they couldn't guarantee safety and the play was, was, uh, was abandoned. And I think that's exactly the kind of intimidation uh, we should not give into. Because once you do that, you allow um, violence to, um, uh, to um, influence um, public discourse and the freedom of expression in a way that's highly undesirable. Hi, my name is Dalen Thrift. Um, when you were talking about religiously informed politics, you know, um, I was just wondering if, if you think there's any like, road that can be taken to use religion you know, in order to create a more just democracy, if there's any path that can, can be used. You know, not necessarily complete separation, but sort of like using it to inform more. Do you, know? you mean what yeah. role can, organize, can religion play in a democracy? In a democracy without completely eliminating it from the political process. Well, I'm not sure it should have a role in the political process. I think it can have a role in, 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 in informing or inspiring people to, ha to have particular political views. So I'm not against uh, a, a Christian Democratic Party or an Islamic party, as long as they play by the democratic rules. Um, but I don't think that religious authority should, uh, or that, that an organized religion should have any political authority to, to um, inject its views into the political process. But believers certainly can. And so the separation between church and state is not the separation, is not the isolation of believers. It's, the, uh, it's, an, it's, it's, it's a way to keep uh, authority separate. And I think that's what the, the founding fathers of the United States had in mind. Hi, thank you. My name is Mark Vermoot, and my question returns, sorry, my question returns to what you were talking about earlier about the revolutionary religious responses, and in both circumstances you were referring to internet, sorry, internet obtained information. Is the, the loss of friction of information traveling, have people done studies to find if there's been higher incidences of that sort of revolutionary religious behavior because it can travel across distances so much more easily? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I, I, I do think it's made a difference um, in the sense that uh, I think it's a mistake to see Al-Qaeda, for example, as some fantastically well-organized um, revolutionary movement with, with sort of powerful and, and super-intelligent manipulators sitting in a cave in Bora Bora. And, uh, the, uh, the, it clearly doesn't work that way. But what it, what it is, is a, is a sort of loosely affiliated um, movement of people who don't know each other at all, um, often copycats, but who pick up information, who exchange information, um, and the, the, the new technologies made that kind of thing much easier, and it's, and it's made it into a global phenomenon, which before it, 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 it wouldn't have been. And so in, in that sense, I, I think the internet does serve as a sort of huge global echo chamber, which, um, which does make a difference in the way that people are organizing themselves. Um, and there's nothing one can do about it. It's, it's just uh, one of those things. I, I, I don't think that, well, one has to manage it as best one can, but I don't think it's something that can be stopped anymore, nor perhaps should it be. Because it, it, has, it has positive effects as well. The same possibilities also uh, make it easier, for example, for people in China to challenge 
authorities when, uh, in cases of gross corruption or, or um, uh, um, 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 abuse. Uh, the fact that news travels so fast um, makes it harder for the authorities to get away with things. This is a question about access to citizenship in, in democracies. You gave the example of the German court apparently exonerating an honor-killing committer. I think German law uh, in the family domestic arena goes by citizenship, not by domicile. So this person may have still been a citizen of, say, Iran. Many Iranians went to Germany thinking to escape Sharia, but in the German courts they can be governed by it. So I'm wondering about uh, the practice in Holland and if the European Union is thinking of standardizing uh, you know, Germany, of course, didn't confer citizenship easily until quite recently, and the laws are quite different. Yeah, I don't think there is a standard. Uh, I'm sorry, my name is Karen Leonard. Right. Um, yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I, I, no, it's, I don't think it is standardized, and it's one of the, the, probably the last things that would be standardized, because these are the sort of things that nation states would be very reluctant to give up their authority over. I mean... The definition of nationalities is a hugely important issue and a very emotive one. And I don't think um, that nation states will give that up. And, and it's hard to say what it is to be a European citizen, since there isn't a European government. But as you say, no, it is different. Um, in, I can't keep up with it because the laws have changed uh, so much. In Germany, it used to be that if you that you had to be of German blood, um, which had sort of the perverse effect that if you, you could show that your uh, grandfather had served in the Waffen-SS in, um, in Silesia in 1937, uh, but you yourself sort of lived in, in Russia, uh, you could become a German citizen, whereas if you were of Tur Turkish origin and born in Frankfurt, you couldn't. Um, but I think that has changed somewhat. They have, they have changed those laws. Uh, in France, on the other hand, which used to be the most liberal in that sense, that if you were born in France, you were a French citizen of the French Republic, there it's no longer so simple. And I think under Giscard, they made it harder and, and moved um, specifically to, to make it harder for non-Western people to become citizens, I think. So it, it's, a, it's a hugely um, fraught issue. The difference with the, U the US is that uh, the advantage of the U.S. and all New World countries is that at least there is a very clear idea of what it is to become an American citizen, and it's a political idea. It means loyalty to the Constitution. Um, uh, the, 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 it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question of citizenship, and it doesn't really matter what gods you worship or what language you speak at home. You can still be a citizen, and hence the hyphenated identity, which in in Europe is harder, and I think it's harder in all uh, old societies, because there the, the nationality is much more based on, on myths, on the idea of shared history, on language, on poetry, on all these things um, uh, that make it harder for an outsider to break in. And they're a bit like clubs with unspoken rules, and, and uh, which doesn't mean an outsider is going to get coshed over the head, but it's very hard for an outsider to become a real member or to be treated as a member. And uh, that'll take a long time, I think. I mean, the, the, I remember when I lived in 
Berlin for a year, um, watching television's uh, literary program and seeing uh, a poet uh, who was an acquaintance of mine, who was born in Berlin. Uh, German was his first language, but he was, his parents were Turkish. Um, and he was constantly referred to perfectly, by perfectly well-meaning um, uh, people, critics and so on, as the Turkish poet, which in America would be un uh, unimaginable. And um, that'll, it'll take time. Michael Tolkien. Um, getting to the States and the, this, the uh, health, health uh, the bill that was just passed, if the Democrats, again, the question, the issue you were talking about before about uh, economic politics versus religious politics, is are we seeing that battle being played out here between the Republican Party's total intransigence and refusing to negotiate at all, and all of the economic, all of the negotiation really being finally within the Democratic Party, and how much of that is, is really a theological battle? Well, I, I think one would have to look at it uh, at specific individuals or cases. Uh, it's hard to make a general statement about that. That there are people in the American political debate, whether it's in the Tea Party crowd or um, uh, on the left, who have a theological view of politics is, is beyond doubt. I'm sure that's true. But I don't think that... The, 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 the proponents of healthcare reform in the US, which after all is, is simply to start uh, reforming uh, the American medical system to come somewhat more into line with almost the entire rest of the democratic world. <laughs> uh, the only countries which had, I was reading in the LA Times today, I think, or was the FT, that the only countries that had, didn't have uh, the kind of coverage that um, uh, other uh, Western democracies, all Western democracies have, where the United States, Turkey, and I think Mexico. Um, and uh, or maybe it wasn't Mexico, I can't remember. But anyway, anyway, it's not where you would really ideally want the US to be. And <laughs> to say that people who promote that kind of reform are somehow uh, fanatics who have this notion of absolute truth and, 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 and redemption and, and an, uh, an idea of an ideal society, I think would be a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, well, the people who think it's socialism and that, that, that any um, use of, of, of perhaps even taxing people uh, is already a, a dangerous form of socialism, yes, I would say that that's less of a stretch. That, Hi, my name is uh, Tom Coughlin. Um, one of the uh, uh, agendas of the right-wing parties in Europe seems to be to stop immigration or to significantly restrict it. Um, in the United States, there's a lot of emphasis with immigrants on integration, um, you know, Amer making them Americans or, or immigrants becoming Americans in a full sense of the word. Um, it, it seems to be different in Europe and in this debate, I don't hear a lot from the, you know, from the uh, traditional uh, Europeans about the benefits of immigration, um, especially of Muslim immigration. Would you, would you care to comment on that? Well, no, I think there are people who, who do point out the benefits. Um, and, uh, well, the, well, let's take it back a little bit. The, the problem in Europe is that the, the, there is no immigration policy. You had guest workers, and, and which was a little bit like 
the kind of policies that, that some people on the right uh, in America um, promote, that it's a good thing to encourage people from south of the border to come in because it's cheap labor, and then you expect them to go back home again. That was the whole notion behind the Gostarbeiter system, that you imported um, preferably illiterate. I mean, people were actually selected on their lack of education because they thought that they would be easier to control. Um, workers from uh, Turkey and Morocco and, and other places. And the assumption in the 60s and 70s that it was that they would go home. Well, of course, uh, as it happened, they didn't. And um, then, I, in fact, out of uh, uh, generosity, uh, the gov the many European governments decided well, it was cruel to leave these men cooped up in, in sort of um, uh, cheap... Uh, hostels without uh, their wives or families, so the families were allowed to come in. And that led to a kind of uncontrolled and haphazard de facto immigration without really um, having any official uh, category of economic migrants. And so, um, uh, and, and anybody who objected to this was very quickly dismissed as racist. And this caused a, a strong resentment against the political elites who were accused of letting this happen, of uh, allowing old working-class neighborhoods to be flooded by immigrants, uh, and um, uh, that fed the, the sort of the right-wing populism, and populism, after all, is anti-elitism. And the immigration issue is just one aspect uh, of that. Now, I think, and people, not only other people who do point out the uh, advantages, and, and not just the advantages of having cheap labor, uh, but also the cultural enrichment and so on, but I think there is more and more um, a stress on assimilation rather than multiculturalism. Multiculturalism was, of course, never very big in France, but it was very much uh, um, the, the received idea in Britain and also in, in the Netherlands for various, various reasons, historical reasons. Um, and I think people are, uh, are rethinking that and now feel there is a sort of a new consensus building that actually cult multiculturalism was a very bad idea now people should be almost forced to assimilate. And precisely for the reasons I just uh, talked about, that people, if you think of nationality as a cultural um, phenomenon, then you can't really have hyphenated identities. Then it means that in order for people to be accepted as citizens, they have to adopt the same culture. And more and more people now are, are saying that that's the essential thing. So it's not integration, but assimilation. Um, the difference... It's true to say that the right-wing parties are anti-immigrant uh, and, and specifically anti-Islam, but the word right-wing is a little bit misleading because some of these right-wing populists um, are not traditionally right-wing. Um, some of them, for example, are very much in favor of protecting workers' jobs, but um, you know, native workers. Um, the other thing, which is, is more peculiar to uh, my native country and which makes... Uh, a populist politician like Geert Wilders is a little bit different from, say, Jean-Marie Le Pen in France, who, in France, um, that goes back to a, a pre-war fascist tradition and, a, and an anti-revolutionary tradition of church and monarchy and uh, with strong anti-Semitic antecedents and so on. Holland doesn't really have a, a strong fascist tradition. And what and this is perhaps somewhat disingenuous, but what uh, Geert Wilders is warning about uh, or against is the notion 
that, or, 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 no, it's a warning about, is that, uh, in his view, the great uh, danger of Islamization is that, is that it will destroy our liberal freedoms. In other words, it's not a, a blood and soil form of traditional uh, European right-wingery. It's, you know, we have uh, fought for all these freedoms, uh, equality of men, of, of the sexes, uh, gay rights, and all that, and um, this is now being threatened by these Muslims. That's the idea. Well, yes, it's right-wing of a kind, but it's not the traditional right-wing. I mean, the Wilders, in fact, um, uh, is the, the wrong kind of philo-Semite, and philo-Semitism can sometimes be quite sinister. I mean, he um, loves to visit Israel um, and gives talks to like-minded groups, and I found somewhere a speech he gave to uh, um, a group in Jerusalem um, who were all deeply worried about the Islamization of the world. And there was Wilders telling these people um, that Amsterdam was the gay capital of the West and these Muslims were destroying this. I don't know how this <laughs> went down with his audience in uh, right-wing Jerusalem, but, um, uh, but that's how complicated it has become. Thank you, Darius Udris. I'm wondering what you think uh, of the question of how prudent or necessary it is for liberal governments or governments of liberal societies to enforce liberal values, whether it be through the prohibition of the wearing of veils or the prohibition or regulation of what can be taught in private, let's say, religious schools or even in home schools uh, when those things conflict with liberal values. Well, I, mean, I, I personally want to ban as little as possible. So I'm not very sympathetic to people who want to ban veils or... I think the, the argument about the burqa um, doesn't need to be solved by having a, 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 a ban of bearing, wearing the burqa. Um, in the first place, there are very few people who wear them. And in the second place, because you can solve those problems by saying that in certain professions, there are certain dress codes, and uh, they don't include um, covering the face, I mean, which is entirely legitimate. But you don't have to have a law banning the burqa in public. So I think those kind of laws are, are rather silly. As far as um, religious-based education is concerned, I do believe that there should be a common curriculum and that, that, that there should be common requirements um, uh, because otherwise you would really disadvantage um, children who, if you were to allow them simply to learn the Quran by heart and not have an, an, any kind of national curriculum, they wouldn't be... Um, um, they wouldn't have much chance to, 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 to have a good life. So there, I think, a certain amount of regulation would be necessary. But I think, um, on the whole, um, what people think and the clothes they wear um, should be up to them. My name is Kevin Fickner. If there wasn't religion, there wouldn't be religious, extreme, religious extremists. So I'm wondering if you feel it's important for societies to evolve beyond religion so they could have a more intelligent, rational discourse about ethics and politics. Well, I th but that, that, that to me, in a way, is, 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 is a theological thought, because it, 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 it's a utopian notion that, that mankind can somehow evolve beyond religion. I mean, people are always going to be frightened of death. They're always going to be, want to have a notion that life has some kind of meaning. And... Uh, that there are um, questions about life and death that cannot be dealt with entirely through science or, or rational thought. And 
people want to have some ritual um, way of dealing with such questions. And so the, 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 the desire for um, one, some kind of religious expression, I don't think it will ever disappear. Um, it'll, it, it can come out, of course, in all kinds of different ways. I mean, if you ban it, well, then what do you get? Then you get it, uh, at best, you, get, you, you find religious expression in, in, in sort of uh, rock concerts or uh, the worship of celebrities or... Um, no, I mean, I, I, I'm not joking. I mean, you see clearly very religious aspects with people who want to touch the clothes of, of, of a famous person because somehow they think it, it rubs, rubs off. I mean, there, there's a, a strong element of the sacred in that, including, including the sacrifice of, of the celebrity. I mean, the, the same people who worship celebrities love to read magazines where the, their celebrities are destroyed, which... Is also every religion has exactly the, that that same type of mythology, <laughs> and um, so I mean there are ways of dealing with these lo longings that don't necessarily involve a church or a mosque or a synagogue. But uh, but I, I don't think it's ever going to go away. And I think banning it and uh, having it pop up in a in a secular way can be just as dangerous as you see in Maoism or, or Stalinism or or indeed Hitlerism. And so you can't get beyond it. Uh, you, so you have to deal with it, and that's what I mean by taming.